0: Welcome to the Military Transition Academy's PM Pathfinder series, where Max Rogers, former enlisted Marine turned naval officer and civilian energy industry project manager extraordinaire, teams up with the former Navy enlisted and Army officer candidate Eric Doc Wright, Vesta PM's founder and best selling author, alongside Jeremy Burdick, a retired Air Force chief, aircraft mechanic, and aviator turned civilian operations chief, and process specialist for Vesta PM and the PDU University, bring you an audio video suite to help you find the path while mentoring you in the profession of project management. Along the way, you can study for your CAPM, PMP, PMP, PMIACP, Scrum Master Certifications, or just maintain your professional development units in a casual, enjoyable conversation between friends. Welcome back to another PM Pathfinder episode with Max, and we're going to talk a lot about the comparing of pros and cons of adaptive and predictive plan-based projects. We're also going to cover the to how to identify the suitability of adaptive approaches for organizational structures. So when we talk about structures, we're talking about um, you know virtual. We've got matrix, we've got hierarchical, and then we've got you know a lot of combo. So it'll be interesting. Projectized is another one. So we'll we'll just kind of pepper in some different um, adaptive approaches and how they would how they would relate to those structures. And then we're going to identify organizational process assets or OPAs and environmental factors that facilitate the use of adaptive approaches. So last episode was a lot of predictive. We're going to really flip the script here and go more adaptive. So as we talk about adaptive and we, and we really begin to discuss some of the pros and cons um, of adaptive and predictive plan-based projects you know, what's something that just jumps out at you when we're talking about the different approaches, adaptive versus predictive?
1: Well, I think the first thing to consider, Jeremy, is uh, how well-defined is the scope of the project at the beginning? If, if it's well-defined, if it's something that you're normally, you know, used to doing then predictive works just fine. I mean, that's why, you know, if you're building a bridge or building a building or some kind of construction project or, or a lot of repetitive, you know, uh, manufacturing facilities or manufacturing processes, predictive works just fine because, you know, uh, you're, you begin with the end in sight. You can do that. <clears throat> if you're, in another type of industry like uh, software development and and maybe even now uh, financial developments and looking at modeling and things like that of econo- economies and stuff like that, where you don't know what the end state looks like or will look like or what it be, then ad- taking a more adaptive approach where you just plan a little, do a little Uh, deliver something to the customer, get some feedback, do a review, and then do it all over again. Uh, It seems to make more sense. The other thing is uh, to consider, I think, is the organization that you're in. Some organizations are set up to do predictive projects. Some organizations are set up to do adaptive projects. Some organizations are in that transition period of trying to transition between doing the old traditional predictive methodology and adapting a, uh, an adaptive uh, approach. And that I think is the most difficult because you're left with all the legacy uh, knowledge and culture of the, of the predictive project methodology. And here you are trying to introduce this, what's, what's basically a radical departure from that into, in order to focus on delivering value to the customer and, and bringing the cu- things that you, uh, you know, in a traditional environment where you've got a firm fixed price contract, once the contract is signed, you basically keep the customer at arm's length as much as possible. Whereas in an adaptive approach, you got to bring the, the, the customer or at least the product owner onto the team and work directly with them. So, so the two, um, uh, if you're just comparing predictive and adaptive, it's easy to tell the difference. When you start talking about the third model of the hybrid, where the two come together, that's when things get a lot more complicated because you, there are, Things like, uh, for example, uh, in an adaptive environment, there's a there's nowhere near the amount of documentation required that is required in a predictive project. However, there are some artifacts and documents that you need in the adaptive environment. Number one, you need a project charter, for and for just like you do in a predictive environment, you need some kind of issues log, whether if you call it a risk register or whatever, whether you write it on a whiteboard or put it on post-it notes or put it in a formal document, but you've got to have that. And the third one is your stakeholder management plan and or stakeholder register, you know, to because it's so important to keep that the stakeholders are intimately involved in it. The only way to make sure you're doing that is to keep, a, a stakeholder engagement log of some way. Once again, like I said, in, in an adaptive environment where you're in a war room that the team shares, that, that's an open environment and collaborative and, and great communication. It can be a section of a whiteboard that you write write it up on. Whereas in a predictive uh, methodology, it's going to be in a three ring binder, in a notebook, on a, in a computer file or something like that. And it's readily accessible, but it's not as, open and you, you don't have the 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 open communications and collaboration in a predictive environment that you have in an adaptive environment so mm-hmm. the I think that that before as a project leader or project manager pro, uh, ag, uh, agile coach you know scrum master whatever role you're in when you go into an organization you have to analyze you know how 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 sophisticated, number one, is this organization with regards to project management? And then what are they used to doing? Traditional predictive project management, or are they used to doing adaptive? If they're used to doing predictive, but there is a desire to transition into adaptive you know, that's a that's a great situation to be in, but there's a lot of warts associated with that that you're going to have to deal with and learn and 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 keep your team focused on agile methodology. And you've also got to train the organization. You know, um, in one of his presentations, Doc uses a great example of that. He was hired to come into the organization to teach them and train them in agile. And one of the first things was discovered was the team needed, and they were working in two-week, iterations and the team needed some specific technical training. So he lines it all up and gets it ready, you know, and all they got to do is sign a purchase order for have someone to come in and provide this training. And the guy goes, well, you know, we got to go send this has to go through procurement do this. Basically it takes about three weeks to get this, this, this approved. So to, so we can get a purchase order done. Well, then it boils down to, Hey, look, you may, you may have a stated desire to be use agile methodology and to be an agile organization, But if it takes you, if you're doing two-week iterations and it takes you three weeks to get a training purchase order in place, you're not agile, okay? You're, You're just not there yet. Now, doesn't mean you can't get there, but you're not there yet. And so you have to take all those things into consideration whenever you're looking at the pros and cons of which method, if you have the opportunity to pick or to analyze and decide which one you're going to use. Most organizations that that I worked in, it was it was dictated. You know what? This is the project management methodology we use. This is the requirements, whether it's a stage gate methodology or or what it is. Everybody, every organization has their own method of project management, and that's what you have to adapt to. So,
0: yeah, well, great. There's, there's a lot there. I'll start with predictive being a hey, plan based, right? You're going right. to plan. Plan it all out. Then you're going to start the project. uh, Then you're going to monitor, did we produce? And then you're going to close it out. Whereas adaptive, completely change-based, right? It's, you don't always know what you're creating. And you said something that was really uh, important is depending on if you've done it before and you know exactly what you're building, if it's a bridge, right? You're probably going to use predictive. Uh, If you're not sure and it's like, hey, we need a solution to update people of their Uh, account balances on a mobile device. That might be an adaptive because you're not quite sure. The scope is a little fuzzy. We don't know exactly how to do that. So let's build a little, get some feedback. Uh, So I really like that. Now, you also said something as well that I want people to hear, and just more of a recap, is plan-based models typically keep stakeholders at arm's length. Not to shove them away, but but because there's distinct points of communication and updates where they don't need to be super close to the project team. Whereas uh, adaptive, we really try to bring stakeholders as close to the inner circle as we can because we want the continuous feedback. So, in my mind, a couple pros for adaptive is flexibility, um, continuous improvement. Uh, you get you, know, you get the stakeholders like you give them value early on in the project and then you can mitigate risk in some sense of cataclysmic catastrophe risk because if you're you're showing the stakeholders stuff in small increments they can say hey whoa wait a minute that's not what I want right mm-hmm. So you don't have an like 11th hour problem
1: yeah you're exactly right you truly are eating the elephant one bite at a time in an adaptive environment. And at any time, you can stop eating, you Mm. know, or or go pick another elephant. Yeah. So And that that is, the to me, that's the biggest advantage of adaptive methodology. And it comes back to the old adage of, you know, when you find yourself in a hole, first thing you do, stop digging. Okay? Put the shovel down. It's impossible to get out of a hole with a shovel. You know, to get out of a hole, you need a ladder or a rope. You know, with a ladder, you can do it by yourself with a rope, you need a friend, but, uh, but either way, you're not going to get out of the hole with a shovel that got you in a hole that created a hole in the first place. And that to me is the biggest benefit of adaptive methodology is it's easy to lay the shovel down. Yeah. And at any, at any point in time say, look, this is going off the rails. This is that you know, that all the, we did not have the information when we started that we have today. And based on the information we have today, we'd have never started this. Yep. So because things have changed that rapidly and that quickly, and that, I think that is a that is a uh, a model that our world is evolving into is this rapidity of how things how quickly things are changing, and uh, you know it it goes from one thing to it, and if, if you that know, you can see it today look at all the, the name changes in technology. Facebook is now Meta, Twitter is now X, right. Google is now Alphabet. You know, now there's a reason these tech companies are changing their names. They will, it will become obvious to the public at some point in the future. But number one, you can bet it is to add value. There, it's a value driven decision on each and every one of these companies. What that value stream is may not be illuminated to the rest of the world right now, but it, it's. I'm surely it's illuminated within the companies. That's why they're doing it. But it. But it's this change. Mission. You know, Ford is not going to change its name. General Motors is not going to change its name. Uh, you know, Kellogg's is not going to change its name. Those are legacy brands and stuff like that. Whereas, uh, you know, um, Facebook. And no problem at all changing it. To, hey, let's change it to meta, which, which more, you know, it brands us in a better and a more realistic light of what we really are. We're not just Facebook. So, um, you know, it's a, uh, so it's a, uh, it's a, it's, it's a testament to the world we're in. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to keep up, you got to learn to adapt. And that's what this adaptive methodology is. I've learned an awful lot about. Agile and adaptive methodology in the last several months, and uh, I'm so I I'm a, I'm truly a proponent. I'm a I'm a agile evangelist, <laughs> as the, you know, as the term that I've heard because I I really think it works. Now, if if I went to T Y Lin to build a bridge somewhere in the world, I would not assume or expect T Y Lin to use. Adaptive methodology. They built bridges for the last hundred years all over the world. They know how to build bridges. I mean, they, they have a, a bridge building methodology that all they do is change the location and the design of the bridge. But the methodology of how you build and design and build a bridge, T.Y. Lynn's got it. They they invented it and, and they own it and they're the best in the world at it. And for no matter where you're at in the world, if you need a bridge built, especially if you want a signature bridge built, the answer is easy. Pick up the phone call TYLN. That's what they do. Yeah. And, uh, but they use, I guarantee you, they use predictive methodology. Yeah. But they they but I guarantee you, they also have incorporated some adaptive techniques into that. Yeah. So they're probably a hybrid, more a hybrid company.
0: Yeah, I think hybrid is really where you're seeing the world go. I mean, it's hard to go like software development. I think you can go full adaptive. Um, construction, probably pretty close to full predictive. But most projects that fall between those two hard lines, it's like uh-huh. bang, right? We're 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 in this hybrid. You might as well use some of the elements. Some negatives, you uh-huh. know, just in the in the sense of cons for adaptive, I would definitely say is estimation. Like how do you it makes it much more difficult to estimate the amount of uh, money or uh, resource allocation. So, if, if we're changing things every day and we're saying, Hey, I wanted this feature, but now I want this feature, well, I might have to go get a completely different set of resources. So, resource allocation, I could see that being a big con,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and then just like stakeholder engagement. If you didn't have stakeholder engagement in an adaptive project, you're pretty much going to fail. Like, you have to have that engagement with a predictive. So long as you got all the requirements up front and you can trace it back to certain stakeholders with your requirements traceability matrix, you mm-hmm. probably could be successful at day of delivery without ever talking to the stakeholders uh, at large. But in a, adaptive, you'd have a hard time delivering a product that they valued if they weren't really close and you kept them engaged.
1: But, but let me share you something, share with you something that I have just uh Witnessed myself here over the last several months. That is exactly what you're talking about. Uh, An original traditional type of methodology, predictive methodology. Here in this area I live in, in Southwest Florida, home building is out of control. It is the speed and the pace at which it's happening. They're building uh, developments with anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 homes in them. They, I see these these major home builders, Lennar and Pulte, and these major companies. They come in and they act. They build the actual dwelling itself, the structure, they're all made out of concrete masonry units, poured on a concrete slab, you know, laid on, starts out with a a concrete slab with plumbing and electrical embedded in it. They build uh, concrete masonry unit walls, they put wooden trusses on it, and then they deck the roof, and then the predictive methodology goes away. Then they switch to adaptive because different customers, some want shingled roof. Some want tile roof, some want flat tile, some want barrel tile, different colors, you know, combination. Then you get into the floor plan is set, but then you have all the options of interior colors and finishes, cabinetry, uh, uh, floor covering, uh, plumbing fixtures. All these things that are lend themselves to adaptive type methodology because they're different. Instead of planning for a 4,000 home subdivision, which you can for the layouts and the structures themselves, uh, and the trusses and the decking, after that, though, then you have to transition into adaptive because because you're trying to sell this house, this product, you're trying to add value to your customer, which is the person who's going to buy the house. And if they're going someone's going to spend 600-700,000 on a house today, they want to pick their floor company. They want to pick their cabinetry. They want to pick their countertops. They it, it's okay, they accept the fact that hey the the floor plan and the layout is what it's, it is. But You know, I want the light fixtures that I want. You know, I don't want hanging light fixtures. I want I want, uh, you know, recessed light fixtures. those sort of things. And I, I see that here in the home building industry. And that is because I I grew up in the home building and construction industry. That is a radical change that never 40 years ago never happened. A builder build a house, this is the house. If you want it, buy it. You know, you don't like the floor covering. take it out and put in a new floor covering. You know, you don't like the cabinet, uh, the countertops, take them out and put a new, that's all up to you. And, uh, but that now it, the model has changed. And uh, and so, and it. I see it, so now you get in this, uh, it, and it's not really a hybrid approach because it's very predictive methodology up until a certain point. And then it stops and then it shifts to adaptive methodology. So there's a there's a line drawn there. So I, I find that very interesting. And that's, that's something that project managers are gonna to have to learn to deal with. And um, I think what they're doing is probably using two pro- different project managers. There's a project manager or a group of project managers that manage the construction of the structures and then, and, and who are not customer focused at all. They're focused on production. That's what they're focused on and the, and the subcontractors. But then you have another group of project managers that take over, that they're completely customer, or customer oriented and focused. They want to put the finishes and fixtures in the house that their customer wants. And they understand that their customers sometimes don't know what they want. So you got to spend time with them. You got to show them the options. You got to show them the trade-offs. You got to show them the difference in the cost about if you pick this over that. And also, which is a, and that's entirely different model than just go build a house and put it for sale side front.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think you pointed out some really good cons to the, um, the predictive side of things when you talk about limited flexibility.
1: Right. Right. First to change.
0: Right, adverse to change. Yep. Uh, you've al- you always got to worry about scope creep because if you lay out the plan and something changes, you need to defend that original plan. And then if you add on to it, that's scope creep, and now you've you've got more resources uh, required than you had budgeted. So now you've got a problem there. Um, I think it's also like kind of what you're pointing out. Even with the house, you're you're not delivering value to the company on that, just building the structure. There's no value there, ultimately, until they deliver it to the customer and the bank pays them the money. So it's late delivery of value in that scenario as well. So those first project managers, if you will, they don't realize the value for the company up until those second ones come in, get the adaptive, get the customer on board, deliver the value, and then, oh, now the money hits the bank account. So right. I think that's, that's some really great, it's a really great example to talk through as you start to say, hey, there's some real good benefits. If we're mm-hmm. going to do this predictive method to build the structures, I can plan for 10 structures at one right. time. I can go procure all these materials yeah, for exactly. 10, get a bulk discount, you know. Mm-hmm. Set then- up a
1: supply chain uh, that it just, block, you know, concrete, ma- you know, 40,000 concrete masonry blocks are delivered to the construction site every week. And you've got your production set up so that your block laying crews can lay 40,000 blocks a week. And and then you get that in place and just go. then, And that's the way it goes. But, you know, you, you just uh, talking about that, though, spurred a, a memory I had. And I did a project one time, an offshore project, a uh, uh, five year project. And uh, we spent almost a year doing a front end engineering design and, and all this planning that went into, and, and we developed this wonderful requirements document. And we, think, we thought we had all the, the requirements na- nailed down, stuff like that, get everything done. And, and literally, our requirements document wound up to be about a 40-page thick document. So I tasked one of my engineers to go back and go through each requirement and annotate if it was based on an assumption, or a known requirement. And it took about two weeks for them to to do it, to go through and do it. And I was shocked whenever they gave it back to me, almost two thirds of the requirements were based on assumptions that we had made. The remaining one third were based on federal laws and regulations and, and compliance stuff that we had to do. So, so that was, we did, those things were, were in concrete. We had to do those to meet, but two thirds of the requirements were based on assumptions that we had made going into this project. And then, and the reason I wanted to do that was the project that I had just finished when I got done and went through and we did our lessons learned capture and thing, we went back and looked at the assumptions we had made five years earlier at the beginning of the project and how many of those assumptions had proved valid and had not gone through a significant change. And almost none of our assumptions were correct. They, they all went through some. And so then when I'm introduced now to adaptive methodology, and where I'm introduced to the concept of, hey, don't spend all that time up front doing all that planning that you know is based on assumptions that you pretty well figured out. The assumptions aren't valid, aren't going to be valid anyway. So why waste the time doing it? Plan a little bit, do a little bit, deliver to the customer, get feedback, make some adaptations, do it again. Yeah. And, wow. uh, so it's uh, like I said, I've, I've become a real convert to adaptive methodology, even though I've been I've performed and been involved and engaged in traditional predictive methodology, my entire working career, I uh I I'm a convert to now to agile. So yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and obviously there's a a great place for both. It's just being able to harness it in the pros and the cons, which really brings us to the next topic of utilizing adaptive approaches for different organizational structures. So what we're talking mostly is, hey, are we are we virtual? Are we co-located? Are we a um, a matrix structure? And then are we a hierarchy? So those are the kind of the big structures that we're going to um, cover. And sure. I think one of the most difficult as we get down there to the last one is that hierarchy of how do we get an adaptive project into that? Uh, I'll will we'll leave that for you to to bring up, but the uh, the easy one I think right if I was teeing you up for a home run out the out the third deck would be virtual teams, you know adaptive adaptive methods in virtual teams.
1: Well, the it's they're possible it's possible, but you have some challenges and the challenges you need to recognize right up front because adaptive. Methodology is based on open communication and collaboration and is based on the premise that the team is co-located together. However, in today's world, and especially if you're working in a global company, that's just simply not going to happen. The good news is there is technology out there that allows you to bring in your non-co-located team members to ensure that there is communication and collaboration. But you, as I think uh, you're going to have to have your, if you have an adaptive project team, that's not co-located, that is virtual, you're gonna have to have a project manager because somebody has got to, there's no role in uh, an adaptive methodologies for someone to be the you know the, the folk primary focus of, of leader and ensure community. now granted, the, the coaches and the scrum masters, yes, it's their job and their role to remove impediments and, and to do things like that. But, but it's a virtual team, running a virtual team requires just about full-time focus on making sure your team members are engaged, uh, that they understand what their task is. That they understand how their tasks relate to other team members' tasks, and that they feel like they are a member of the team. Yeah. And it's uh uh that that's uh it's very challenging. It can be done today with with the technology we have today, but it's uh if you notice anything that's been written by PMI about agile methodology, it's of a stress the importance of co-locating team members and having the ward room. And, and 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 it's because of this intimate, osmotic communication uh, of information on white information radiators that have are posted in the war room. And and uh, you know that that spontaneous information that you gather by overhearing two other members of the project team having a discussion about something. And those sort of things don't happen in a virtual environment. So you, somebody's got to make sure that all that information is transferred to everybody. And uh, that, that can become a big job. So
0: I like how you put that. You, you almost have to have a full-time position that is dedicated to collaboration. <laughs> right? It's, it's, I don't know, care what you call it, a cl- a collaboration master uh, that puts all the information in a pull methodology to where, it's on a web page. it's on a board that's shared that everybody's actively on. Um, and I love I like I, all your examples is wonderful. it's it's not really an adaptive project if you're not collaborating.
1: exactly and, <laughs> and and back to what you mentioned earlier about dealing with stakeholders and the different types of communication in a in a predictive environment. Typically, the communications you have with your stakeholders is a push type of communication. You send that information out, whereas in an adaptive environment, because the information is clear, transparent, collaborative and well communicated and it's in a common location, the stakeholders can simply walk into the wardroom and they pull the information. You don't have to push it to them. And they pull, the the benefit of it is, they pull the information that is important to them at that time. And then they turn, and they don't need to ask questions. They don't need to disturb the project team from what it's doing. Or anything else, they just walk in and say, if if a stakeholder is interested in one particular feature that's on the the backlog, And his interest today is whether or not they've started it yet. He walks in and look at the Kanban board. And if it's still, in, if it's not progressed to work in progress, if it's not in in that work in progress column, he knows it hasn't started yet. And and then maybe he goes back and addresses with the product owner go, hey, how come this, you know, you agree this is going to be done in this iteration. And here we're halfway through the iteration and this hasn't started yet. So what's going on? So, right. and, and, and then that conversation is between a stakeholder and the product owner. And it doesn't dr- take the team members or the, the developers away from what they're doing. So,
0: yeah, because
1: there may be a, a, a very simple, easy, logical explanation. It may be that all the product owner has to tell the stakeholder is, look, that, that feature is going to take two hours to accomplish you know, you're right. We're we're halfway through a two week iteration. It was, no, and we're not concerned at all about not getting that that feature developed during this iteration because it's a two hour level of effort. That's right. Uh, oh, okay. Didn't realize. Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. So, uh, and yeah. and there you go. And that 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 to me is is what some of the nuances of adaptive type methodology that traditionally I always had to deal with that myself. I had to handle that, And now there is a new way of doing it that takes that load, reduces some of my load and some of my burden that I have to do every day as far as workload.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a huge benefit of the co-location is your, it's immediate feedback, immediate collaboration, even without effort, right? It just naturally occurs. And like you said, the leaders can just pull information from everything that's plastered on the wall. And I encourage teams out there to do that. Post as much information out there. So it's conversations you don't have to waste your time having.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Uh, Some considerations, like if you, if you had a, a negative to co-location, could be you don't have access to expertise talent because they're not at your location, right? Like you may run into a situation where you're going to have to bring in a SME and pay for them the travel, or you put them on a virtual board, or you make some kind of hybrid situation where you can get access to the talent needed.
1: And we all know, even though all of that may work, none of it is as effective as face-to-face communication. Yeah, that's uh, That's the most important thing about it.
0: Agreed. All right. So now Matrix, you know, um, you're you're talking kind of a little bit of a a mix in between project ties, co-location versus hierarchical. You know, Mm -hmm. what what kind of things do you see there um, that would be a good thing or maybe even a bad thing?
1: Well, one of the challenges if you're pursuing adaptive type methodology in a Matrix organization is that typically your team members are not full-time on the project. So when you're doing your estimating, typically the estimates are made as estimation of effort required or made in ideal time. That means the, the developer is full-time on this with no distraction. Well, in a matrix organization, that, that's not the way it works. You know, mm-hmm. the guy may have two hours today to work on the project, Uh, And two hours in the afternoon and then changes tomorrow. So it's uh, that it's very becomes very challenging in a matrix organization (coughs) to have this adaptive methodology. Because once again, some of the tenets of agile methodology is highly self-organized, self-motivated teams that are focused on value delivery? Well, if you got a, a member of your team who's working for a functional line manager part of the day and working for the project team part of the day, how can he be focused, completely 100% focused on the value delivery to the customer? And the answer is he can't. So now how you deal with it, I suppose, is that you you base your estimate estimated effort on ideal time. And then you step back and say, okay, I don't have, I'm not, I don't, my calendar is not ideal time. My calendar is I got this guy two days, uh, two hours a day. Okay. And when a guy is working, a a person is working on your project two hours a day, he's not going to come in and stop or stop, start a stopwatch and be effective for two hours. He's going to have to come, he's going to come in, he's going to have to spool up, which means because he he hasn't been there since yesterday, he's going to have to go back and do some refreshing and he's going to get spooled up and then he's productive. And then he realizes that, Hey, my time is up in 15 minutes. So he starts spooling down. So if you've got a two hour period of time for someone to work on your project, ideally, you're probably only got an hour and a half of the guy's time. So That's what you have to put into your estimate and and show that. So it's very difficult. I I think, you know, functional and even matrix organizations would be difficult to execute adaptive projects in. Now, I think a way of handling it is you take your your functional people and you break them out of their, their normal functional organization and you assign them to the project team full time while the project is underway, with the understanding that when the project is underway, you know they're going back to their to their functional job. And that would be a way to deal with it. But the downside of that is or the, you know, one of the tenets of agile methodology is a team constantly improves. And it improves by doing iterations and working together and and sharing team knowledge and those things. And if someone knows that, hey, I'm going to work on this project for two weeks and then I'm going back to my my desk and I'm going to be off of it, there's a tremendous lack of motivation factor there. Whereas if you have... People permanently assigned to the project organization that, hey, you guys are going to we're going to put you together. We're going to keep you together. Want you guys to learn to work together and want you to get. And and the goal being that you're going to have continuous improvement and that you're going to do it every iteration. You're going to get better and you're going to get better and better and better and better. I don't mean necessarily faster i just mean better you're going to communicate better you're going to collaborate better you're going to d- develop a higher quality product you know you're going to you're going to increase customer satisfaction each iteration it's going to get better and you can do that with a team that is that is, is assigned to a project for the life of the project and you can ensure that happens but but if they're Coming and going or not full time. It's hard. It's it's the old uh, you know uh, pig and chicken. Would as far as uh, a ham and egg sandwich, you know the the chicken's involved, the pig's committed. That's and, right. And, and and what you what you want is commitment. And and for adaptive methodology to work, you have to have committed team members.
0: So. Yeah. Wow, great! Yeah, matrix. You're serving two masters: your functional manager and your project manager. So, we all know how that works out.
1: Nope. we've all done that in the past, and we all know the difficulty associated with that. So, yeah,
0: but I love that you brought up a couple points, and I just want to iterate this for the listeners: is ideal time. I think that was that was genius, right? Because when we plan things, when we uh, even in your home environment, you say, hey, it's going to take me four hours to get from, you know, this town to the next town. That's ideal time.
1: That's if an- I can drive 60 miles an hour and there's no traffic back up and I don't run out of gas.
0: Right. And no bathroom breaks. Right. Exactly.
1: No flat tires. None of that. Exactly. Yeah. Four that's- hours. And that's funny. That's what I have to explain to my wife when we go on a trip. She asked me, how long is it going to take us to get there? And I go, honey, it's going to take 10 hours driving time now, how after you need to stop to go to the bathroom, whenever you want to stop to stretch your legs, whenever you want to go stop to get something to eat, when you want to stop to see something on the side of the road, none of that counts toward the 10 hours. Okay. The 10 hours is all on top of that. And yeah. Uh,
0: so, yeah. And great. Great. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's eye opening thing, but it's something you really have to watch for. Like you said earlier is, break it down like to yeah. what's real time. Like how much time do they need spin up? To, uh, how much time are they going to be looking at their watch when it's, you know, mm-hmm. quick time? exactly. But I love the, also the commitment, right? If I have, if half my time is in my functional, that's where my long-term career job is.
1: Yeah. He's right. In your who's right in your fit rep. That's, yeah. you know, or, and in a civilian world is who's right. Who's, who's going to determine your bonus check. Because right. you signed a you signed an employment contract for your salary, so you're getting paid. Dad, that's that's basically guaranteed. What's not guaranteed is the bonus. But you want you everyone's focused on who determines my bonus, and that's the person they're looking to make happy.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So great point. I mean, who yeah. has that power? Most likely your functional manager, even right. if it's your power, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, let's let's ta- talk this through on the hierarchical side. So okay. let's think about military, right? That's a great example of a hierarchy. They cu- complete chain of command, reporting up. How do we run an adaptive project in a hierarchical uh, environment or structure?
1: <clears throat> well, I can tell you the direct experience I had. Uh, you may remember in the early 1990s, the there was a shit, there was a movement within the Department of Defense for total quality leadership TQL, and they sent commanding officers and prospective commanding officers to courses and told and, and instilled in them the importance of. Total quality leadership, and which was based on an adaptive, sort of inclusive, collaborative, open communication, so like, which goes against the hierarchical type structure of the military. So I happened to be a company commander in a CB battalion, and our battalion commander had decided that it was he needed to implement TQL into the battalion. So on Saturday mornings, uh, there was a committee that was established, and I was selected to be on that committee because of my position as a company commander, and we were to sit around for four hours and to, first of all, discover what does it make, what is TQL in a CB battalion, and then secondly, how do we develop a TQL program, and then how do we Implemented into the battalion So after two or three Saturday mornings of totally fruitless endeavors of trying to come up with what how we what TQL is and because it all butt up against taking away the authority of the commanding officer and he wasn't interested in that at all. So after about the the in the middle of the third or fourth. Four hour iteration. He, the commanding officer, is sitting at the head of the table and he is sick and tired and disgusted with all our efforts and activities. And he looks around the table and he slaps the table. He goes, Well, I've decided, you know, if we can't get TQL the way I want it to be, then I'm not interested in it. And I said, there you go. And so that's how, and guess, and because he was the commanding officer, You know, he wrote everybody's fitness report. So everybody's going to, so everybody agreed. You're right, Skipper, we're not going to do TQL. And so that was the demise of TQL in a CB battalion. And and it is, I, I don't know how you could implement adaptive methodology in a hierarchical environment because the people who are in the positions of power in the hierarchical organization are not interested in divesting themselves of the power and the control that they have. And it it may not be for nefarious reasons. It may just simply be, they don't trust the system. They, they are inexperienced with the system, but, but for whatever the reason is, you know, it's always good to be keen. And, uh, and the king is not going to advocate being king just so to make everybody else in the kingdom happy. Right. That's, you know, he'll do what he can do as king to make everybody happy, but he's not going to, uh, you know, step down from his throne in order to make everybody happy. And yeah. I, so I, I, I think that, that you would, it would be very, it would be a wonderful, uh, uh, PhD dissertation if you could figure out how to transition a hierarchical organization into an adaptive organization and everybody within the organization be satisfied.
0: right yeah what an undertaking I will say the the way that you could do it if you were a, a you know a project manager in a hierarchical situation is the king like you said would have to create a pocket right a cross-functional team. And then that way they don't advocate any authority, but this team goes. So the air force does a rapid improvement events or uh-huh. tiger teams. And I've been a couple, you know, I've been a part of a couple of those and those are adaptive projects within the hierarchical system, but they still retain control. So we work on, Hey, go solve this, right. Uh-huh. We a sexual scandal in basic uh-huh. military training. So they got me in a, about 12 other individuals together we sat around a room and said, okay what can we do to help the character and uh, long-term fix of the power imbalance that creates these pockets of uh of issues that can arise, you know in an isolated environment So that was our our charter, if you will, and we did it in a hierarchical manner, but we were completely, Locked away, it, it almost turned it into what we talked about in the beginning. We, we became a collated, a co located team in a war room, knocking mm-hmm. on the project.
1: And now that, and, and I agree with you 100% that, that that is the way to do it, if that's what you want. But that, in my mind, though, that that becomes a, a project oriented section within the, the hire. So you're basically breaking it out. Now, if as long as you have your autonomy, and, of course, it, it all comes down to, as long as the hierarchical organization remains, whatever you produce or whatever your outcomes are, the king has to sanction it. Yeah. And if he doesn't sanction it or if he's got, he, he's going to at least have line item veto. Oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Yeah, I like this. Uh, no, I don't like this at all. We ain't doing this. And so that's right. But yes, I, but in my mind, I, I wasn't thinking it that way. I would, I was thinking of a purely hierarchy, How do you do this within a within the hierarchical organization? Doing what you're talking about in my mind is you're you break a team out, and that's the project team, and that and that's how you know in most organizations, like manufacturing organizations, uh, they have they do they execute. They're every day they're manufacturing, they're doing their operations every day, but. There comes times when they need to do something different or improve something. They will put together a project team or they will have a standing project team. And they just that's they that's their tasking. That's what they give them to do. And, and so operations goes on, manufacturing continues, everything goes on, but then the project team comes up with a revised process or maybe a new product or, or maybe a new material to use or, uh, you know, something and they look at it and they test it and they adapt that in. And then they bring that in to the operation, but the operation continues. It never stops it's, uh, then all of a sudden it just gets gets absorbed into it and it keeps going and yeah. uh so agreed. I've been involved agreed. in that type of organization
0: before. yeah I agree yeah my my uh, <clears throat> was definitely more of a breakout of a it's it's destroying the hierarchy right the the other way I've seen a unit do it and we trained this unit and um, what they really did is at this at the lower worker B level they set up like Kanban boards daily standups and they reported to the next level. And then that level got together and used some of the tools and techniques, and they became like a roundtable of stakeholders. And then they show the value at the, you know, if you want to call it a retro, they didn't always use the same terminology, but they would bring like the commanding officer in and say, hey, let's display this effort. So they would use the Kanban boards and they would use some of the daily standups and some of the adaptive approaches without disrupting the hierarchical chain. So it's more about using the tools and techn- uh, and techniques rather than trying to adjust the structure because you're not going to break the hierarchy. No commanding officer, like you said, is going to say, yeah, my authority's gone. <laughs> I'll give it up. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You
1: guys, y'all form a committee and run this company, right? That's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but, but great. I think that's two two different ways. You have to break out a team or you work the tools and techniques within your level or sphere of that. Uh, hierarchy, right? Um, and,
1: and let me make one other point here, Jeremy. I think it, you, you've hit on it. A, uh, it's very important if you're trying to bring change into an organization, which according to PMI, that's what projects are all about. You have to focus on the organization as far as you have to get the organization to accept the fact that, hey, we need to change. And that we need to find a better way to do this. And, and that is the typically the toughest nut to crack. You know, you have to convince the C-suite uh, people, the CEO, the COO, the CFO, that, that this is necessary or important for us to do. And the way you do it is you put together a business plan that shows the benefit to the company and how it's going to benefit it, either financially, Uh, standing in the market from a reputational standpoint, uh, from a compliance standpoint, something. But you, you, you need to show a benefit. And then you need to make sure that the benefit is justified by the expense or the chaos or the potential risk or all these other things that come with it. The benefit has to trump all of that. And if that in fact happens, then you'll typically, unless and if, if you're working in an organization that doesn't accept uh changes like that and, and and suggestions for changes like that, yeah, I'd suggest you sharpen up your resume and go look for another organization to work in because that's not a good place to work. And uh good and, and most companies are not that way. most companies are looking to improve their profitability, number one, improve their standing in the industry, number two. Uh, improve their compliance with whatever they have to. Uh, being a good steward of of the environment, being a, a a place that employees like to work, all those things are important to well run organizations. And and you accomplish that by projects, by executing a project within an organization. So,
0: Ollie, oh, once again, great great segue into what we're talking about next is the different organizational process assets and environmental factors that help us facilitate those adaptive approaches. And one of them is that organization, right? That organization has to be willing to adapt to those approaches. So I think that's a, one of those great, great, uh, you know, uh, segues into this other, this other section here. And I think, you know, it kind of starts off with, do you need to probably document your agile framework? You need to say, Hey, I'm, I'm committed, if you will. It's almost like an organizational charter saying we as an organization are committed to doing X in this framework, Y, right?
1: Exactly. And in your war room on a information radiator, the agile manifesto needs to be posted and probably the 12 principles that go along with the agile manifesto. And for the simple reason, when anyone questions, why are you doing this? You can just point to that right there, you know, because we value customer collaboration, and communication over negotiation. That's yep. what we right. you
0: know,
1: or, or whatever. So yes, Now we will say also in my experience in teaching classes, the OPAs and EEFs are a new, brand new concept to just about everyone in the class, but they get it immediately once you explain to them what they're there, they're all used to dealing with them. They yeah. just, it, this is just, this is one of those new terminology or a terminology that PMI uses that they've never heard of, or, you know, what uh, an OPA, what, what, what is that? And it, and it's, you know, it's easy. It's, it's any policies, procedures, you know, processes that the company has and that, that you're required to work under, and it's any other any organizational knowledge base that you have, and that's your your old lessons learned, engineering uh, wikis, uh, libraries, or archives, or any of that stuff, and and old organizational charts, and procurement rules, and regulate, and all of that. It's basically the artifacts or the documents that the company uses or produces, and is what the OPAs are. And then the the east, the EES. Once again, it's simple. There's internal ones and there's external ones. The you know the the internal ones uh, sometimes are within your span of control. You can control those. You know, resource capabilities, organizational culture, IT software they're using, distribution of facilities. You know how your team is located, where they're located all those sort of things like that, you've got a little control over. You make you and shift software, buy new software, stuff like that. And that you can control that and, and you should based on the context of your project. But then the external ones uh, like marketplace conditions, laws and regulations and compliance requirements, operating conditions, social and cultural uh, influences and things that are going on out there in the wide world of information, uh, those sort of things are completely outside your span of control. You can't tune them out. You got to pay attention to them, but you can't spend a whole lot of time of weight because any effort you spend toward influencing is wasting because those things are outside your external environmental factors. And those you just need to be aware of that's the environment that you're having to live and operate within. Not that you need to go out and change it, just, live with. We're dealing with that look how social norms are changing today and how they've changed in the last 10 years. And they're going to continue to change. You know, look how information is changed and things. I've got a a friend of mine who's a high school teacher and we were talking the other day about textbooks and they don't have kids aren't issued textbooks anymore in the school that he's in. They have textbooks in the classroom, if the kids want to use, but everything is on their phone. Anything they have an app and anything they need, uh, read a chapter in a textbook, or whatever, they pull it up on their phone. It's all in the palm of their hand. And they don't have to. Number one, so I was asking him about, OK, well, if kids don't have textbooks, do you still have lockers? And in, in the school, he goes, oh, yeah, we got lockers. They're all, you know, the school's been, was built 25, 30 years ago. And they put lockers in and the lockers are still there. I said, so what do the kids do with the lockers? He goes, nothing. He goes, a matter of fact, he goes, we, we don't, it, we rent the lockers. If you want to, to have a place to store stuff, your lunch or Whatever, an oversized backpack or another pair of shoes or anything like that, you can rent a locker at the high school and put. You know, and, and I'm thinking back of how that's changed from when I went to school, when where you were, you had eight classes or seven classes. Every class had a textbook, and it was before the invention of backpacks. Somehow, nobody ever had the idea of a backpack, and so you had to haul these books around with you everywhere you went or put them in your locker. And uh, but. That's just an example of how things have changed kids, you know, get their information from a tele, from their telephone today. So
0: yeah. Great great example. Uh, I like it. I like how you explain, you know, the organizational process assets. I usually uh, explain it. Opa. It's the, it's the uncle, it's, it's the German word for grandpa, right? So it's the, it's the old guy that's up in the attic. That knows everything about the company And if you have a question for him, you go ask him and he's got some great wisdom for you. That's like Opus, that lessons learned database. You said that Um, it could be whatever agile tools they buy, like if they buy a Jira or they buy a Microsoft project and they, you know, add the agile or Monday or Slack or all these different organizational tools. And then environmental factors. I love that you brought them into it internal because most of the time we think of them as external, Mm -hmm. like. Hey, the guys up in Congress, right north of Richmond, they're saying, "Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to enact this law, and that means you got to do X." And you know, so that's external. Like you, you like um, you said, internal stuff could be like culture. Yeah, difficult to control, but you could influence it right with your project, um, and then getting the organizational to allow self-empowered teams. I found that to be one of the when we talk to units, <coughs> companies. One of the biggest hurdles is for a leadership-minded uh, individual to embrace a self-empowered team. Yep, it's like it's hey, threatening in- makes are you, run into
1: prison <laughs> for a, for a person in power allowing empowering a project team within his organization is threatening. It's absolutely threatening, and so what you have to do is make that person not feel threatened. And the way you do that is, number one, clear, clear, clean, open communications with them, full collaboration, transparency about what you're doing. So And eat eat the apple one bite at a time. Don't go in and ask for the whole apple. Just, you know, ask, let me take a bite. Okay, just let me have a bite. And then let me show you the value that I can add. And then you decide whether or not the value is worth the fact that you just lost a bite of your apple. And then you think about it for a while, see how it works, see how it all plays out. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask for a second bite of that apple. Mm. And then you, as the, as the organization leader get makes the decision. No, you're not, you ain't getting another bite of my apple, but I will guarantee you this because companies are focused, focused on, Profitability, things like profitability and market share, and and standing within the industry and things like that. If your value added that you are offering adds to profitability, productivity, uh, stature within the industry, those sort of things, they're gonna. If if they are, uh, you know, uh, it, like I said, if that's a CEO, or CFO, or COO is not interested in that. You need to go find somewhere else to work because that you don't you don't have a bright future there. Cause that that is not an organization that's going to excel. You know, yeah, it's uh you, survive. You, you you gotta have open-minded people who are are smart and they don't need to be the smartest person in the room. All they need to do is recognize they don't need to be the smartest person in the room, just as long as I've got the smartest person in my room. That's all I need. Right. And he's working for me, then hey, I don't need to be that guy, but I need to make sure I've got that guy. Yeah. And, um,
0: so and that environment. I think that's the the biggest benefit to adaptive is it's incremental and iterative value delivery. Right. Exactly. And if you don't build that environment where it can thrive where you embrace that, mm-hmm. your competitor probably is. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're you're it's time to market these days. I mean, the the American um, attention spans down to like 19 seconds or less. So what they want is the f- the newest, hottest thing yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the way you deliver that value is through adaptive. It, it just gives you quicker value delivery to the customer. So like if you're a product manager or you've not, you're, you know, you're, you're listening to this and you're like, Hey, what do, I'm delivering stuff? You're probably going to benefit from some sort of an adaptive incremental or iterative delivery system.
1: Right. And I was, this got me to thinking back on, you know, why are deep ocean engineering projects five years long? And uh, so, but mainly that's driven because of the manufacturing time to make this equipment that you put on the seafloor and also driven by the permitting process that's controlled by the federal government, which once again, those are EFs, are, are that are outside your span of control, uh, no matter how bad you want a blowout preventer, you're only gonna get it in as quickly as wild well con- uh, controls can build, okay? And, and where you fall on their delivery schedule and those sort of things. Um, you know, secondly, <clears throat> you, you have to do this engineering in order to get the permit. I mean, you have to show the federal government you know, a complete set of plans and specifications for this platform that you're planning on on installing, and then at the same time, you've got to get you know a company out there to drill and complete the wells, and how you know and and make sure those wells are functional and that they flow, and get them all done. So and then there's this big orchestration that happens at the end where <coughs> the wells that are drilled and completed and are ready to flow are connected to the subsea hardware via the jumpers that you had designed and manufactured. And then they go to the, the uh, manifolds, which then distribute the oil out to a pipeline that was either already in place or you had to build and design and put that in place. And then that oil goes ashore somewhere to a refinery. Uh, and, and you don't just Put oil in a pipeline and send it to a refinery there's contracts involved you know you you have to make your deliveries at a specified time so so there is a just me just sitting down on the back of an envelope the other day just sketching out the requirements and stuff and like all of a sudden it became intuitively obvious yeah why does it take five years to do this and the problem from the business standpoint is once the project is sanctioned by the oil company the cash register is opened and money starts flowing out and it flow Not a dime flows in for five years until everything is completed, hooked up, tested and commissioned. And when that oil starts flowing through that pipeline, then that cash register goes the other way. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. But for five years that you can spend $5 billion and not get one dime back. And all along, knowing that there may be external environmental factors that happen that you have no control of, that you can't flow that well five years from now, because the federal government says, nah, uh, we're going to make batteries and, and make wind turbines and, and solar panels. So uh, we're going to throttle the domestic production. And that's a risk you take. You, and you, you've already spent the $5 billion.
0: Yeah. Uh, Wow! Now Utah—that's a great example of a predictive project that can be impacted by an external Eve.
1: Yep, <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, that's too cool. Hey, the great story to uh, kind of wrap it up on um, as we as we end this episode. We really covered a lot of ground with pros and cons to adaptive and predictive. So we kind of juxtaposed those two different uh, methodologies against each other. We also talked about the organizational structures between co-location, uh, virtual teams. We hit matrix, we hit hierarchy. And then we also, um, we ended with, you know, the OPAs and the East that can help you through an adaptive environment. Anything stand out that you want to, uh, you know, just kind of wrap this up on, Max?
1: One thing that we are remiss and did not mention, and that is back about the, when you're in the selection process or looking at the pros and cons between adaptive and predictive, there's this model called the Stacy complexity model. And it lays it out, well, it's based on uh, your requirements and your technical capabilities and how close to agreement you are and close to certainty those things are. And it lays it out in a two dimensional diagram where if you're in the lower left hand corner predictive methodology is probably the best way to approach it because it's fairly simple as far as the requirements and the technical capabilities concerned as you progress on up through across the chart there and things become more complicated and complex then you merge into the adaptive arena where uh, adaptive methodologies tend to be more uh, uh, productive and work better in those situations. And then as you continue on and get up into the upper right-hand corner of that diagram, you approach the area they call chaos. And there, the recommendation is to go back to a predictive type methodology simply because the hierarchical nature of a predictive environment may l- allow you to control some of the chaos. But if you're in the middle part of that diagram, where you have complex and complicated issues and decisions need to be made, and and all the answers aren't available up front, <clears throat> then you're in the adaptive methodology arena. Oh, great! If you're in, if you're not in that space, then predictive is probably the way to go. And it's a, uh, it's in the student guide, and uh, uh, it's a, it's a simple little. Uh, diagram and if you spend some time looking at it then all this stuff that we've talked about for the last hour tends to make sense i think it brings it out visually of of the way to if if you ever find yourself in a situation where you have your boss tells you okay project manager pick what are we going to do we're going to do this predictive or we're going to do this adaptive that you're if you use the stacy complexity model uh, number one, it will probably steer you in the right direction. Number two, it's a great shield to have to stand behind when someone ever questions, hey, why in the world did you pick this? Well, based on the requirements and the technical capabilities we had at the and knowledge we had at the time, this is where we fell on the Stacy complexity model. And that's why I chose that method. And so that's a that's a great shield to be able to say. And you can say now, granted, now at today we have discovered that the requirements have changed, and our technical capability is not what we thought it was, and therefore we are no longer in the area that we thought we were, and we are back into where we should be using. Where based on Stacy's complexity model, we should be using another type of methodology.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So, Wow. I'm glad you brought that up. And what a wonderful add on too. It's like adaptive kind of thrives in that hourglass of around the fringe of chaos yeah. yep, and not simplicity. Right. So it's right. like if you've done Between
1: it. Between simplicity you, and chaos. That's that, right. No, no. Yeah.
0: I mean, because if you've done it, I mean, let's break it down to something that's it's fairly easy. If you go grocery shopping, that's pretty low complexity, but there's a lot of things going on, but it's easily repeatable. Mm-hmm. So, make your, your grocery list. Yep. Right. If it's so chaotic, you can't even define it. You better sit down and plan a little bit
1: mm-hmm.
0: or you, or you redefine the project altogether. Like it's like, don't touch it if it's in the house of pain of uh, chaos. Right. Oh. But if you don't, you have more questions than answers. You sit in that little hourglass of, Hey, we could do this adaptively because we need all our stakeholders really close to make immediate decisions back to back to help the project produce. So I love it. What great! Uh,
1: let me t- let me give you an add on to what you just said, your example about the grocery shopping, because my wife, she is the person she sits down and she plans the meals that we're going to have for the week. And then based on the meals, she plans the groceries that she needs to buy to support those meals. And then she goes into the ads and finds out which grocery store, Target, Walmart, whatever, has the things she's needing to buy on sale and plans her shopping trip that way. Now, when we were out cruising though, down in the Caribbean, especially in the Bahamas, uh, you never had the luxury of knowing what was going to be on the shelves in the grocery store. So she had to completely change and go to an adaptive type of methodology where we would go into a village and go to the local market or grocery store. She would see what food was available to purchase and she would buy what was a good value. And then she would have to plan on her feet then, okay, how do I incorporate this into a dish? And then how do I incorporate the dish into a meal and then do all that? So she had to turn it around and she, that really, um, upset her initially but then she grew to she liked it because of she is basically a a spontaneous sort of person or she enjoys spontaneity i should say but she's a very calculated planning sort of a type personality sort of person so but When you made that example about the grocery store, and that's exactly what she does today. She's back to predictive methodology for her grocery shopping today. But outside of the America, she had to shift to an adaptive methodology in order to procure because there was no there was no guarantee that there was going to be hamburger and turkey and and steaks and and whatever else there there was going to be available. You uh, you you purchased what was available that day.
0: Oh yeah! What what a great um great analogy, great story, and I think it helps. It helps people. <clears throat> like, Why would I do it predictively if it was super easy, right? Because it's super easy, and you just build your plan and you knock it out. It's repeatable.
1: And what I'm really enjoying now about studying more about adaptive methodology is that I see in the past. I mean, if you ask me, you know. Six months ago, hey, have you ever done adaptive methodology type project management? I was going, no, absolutely not. Now I realize, yes, I did. I didn't recognize what I was doing. Now, it was, it wasn't purely agile, it was a hybrid, but I use but what I recognize now and what I find to be very beneficial and as far as adding value to a situation or an individual is the fact that you can shift from predictive to adaptive back to predictive based on what PMI calls the context of your project. And you tailor the processes and procedures you use in order to benefit the project. And so all these things are starting to become tied up together now. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm just, I'm coming to this realization myself. now. So it's a, uh, and so it should be exciting. I'm hoping the, the, you know, the students that are out there that are just taking on formalized project management now that they, they do enter this with an open mind and that the, there's, you know, there, there's always more than one way to skin a rabbit and, and, and PMI has recognized that. And even though they're, they're, are they're committed to, producing and supporting professional project managers they're also embracing agile methodology that says we don't need no stinking project manager and so i i find that uh uh encouraging and that they uh, that they they do that and i i and i see it in now in everyday real world occurrences and and how the two work together so
0: yeah i i agree if the only thing you got is a hammer everything's a nail so, I mean, yep,
1: exactly. And exactly. If you go through life with a hammer in your hand, yep, every, everything's a nail. So that's right. Um, but there's
0: so many different ways to approach it. And you don't always, you said something really prophetic, I think, is you don't always have to stick with one methodology, even on the same project. There's different phases of a project and different uh, increments that could benefit hugely by adaptive. And then when it gets back to simple and repetitive, go right back to planned. I mean, you're and, good to go.
1: And project managers that are going to that are able have can develop the ability to shift seamlessly between predictive and adaptive. They are going to be prove themselves to be extremely valuable to organizations because of the way our world is changing and shifting, stuff like that. And having anybody that's adaptable and that can understand has been on both sides of the fence and knows how to graze on either side of the fence. And uh, it's very valuable. And uh, it's just like we talked about in the last podcast about, you know, developing the technical skill of variance calculation, cost and schedule, variance calculation. That, that is the most important technical skill for a project manager to develop because that allows you then to forecast, which is the most valuable thing that any manager can do. Whether you're a project manager, a functional manager, any manager, you, if, you, if you have the ability to forecast accurately into the future... You are a value to that, to the organization. Yeah. Because most people operate looking in the rearview mirror. Right. That's all they they've got the data. This is what the data shows. This is what the last monthly report shows, and all that. They're, and everybody's operating out of the rearview mirror. But if you can forecast, you're looking out the windshield. And what will happen is because you're looking out of the windshield and they're all looking at the rearview mirror, you get to drive the bus. That's right. <laughs> because you're looking out the windshield and and the 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 higher ups and the company are going to realize, yes, this, uh, this, the less risk for this organization is to let Max drive the bus because he's looking out the windshield. Everybody else is looking out the rearview mirror.
0: That's, That's right. Tomorrow. Yeah. Great analogy. Wow. Thanks so much for your time again. I think everybody got a lot out of this one. We covered a lot of ground. But ultimately it was a lot of back and forth between predictive and agile. And, and in the real world, I think in real project management, it's a lot of combined. It's a lot of hybrid. So
1: it is. So don't pick a side.
0: Don't pick a side. No, so
1: learn on. both. That's that's what I'm really enjoying now. I am I'm really increasing my knowledge about agile methodologies. And it helps, it is, it definitely helps me as a predictive project manager because I know this stuff. So it's, uh, and it's the, it's the, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a great skill set to have to be able to do both and to combine the two together to, and to, and most importantly, to work in the hybrid space between the two, because that, that's where you're really going to make the, the deliver the biggest value is in the hybrid space. Yeah,
0: I agree. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next episode.
1: Okay. And look forward to it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the PM Pathfinder series and want to join the profession, certify, or maintain your PDUs by visiting vets2pm.com and looking up Project Manager Essential Toolbox or a Bootcamp.